My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Today, I had the chance to sit down with a friend and colleague of mine and someone that I've learned an awful lot about how to invest in mining companies, how to evaluate them, how to find great opportunities, and how to manage those opportunities and when to get out. He's someone that I think that everyone in the mining industry should know or know about, but very few people actually do. He's a venture capitalist. He's based here in Vancouver, and he's been involved with some of the most successful companies, some of the biggest discoveries of the past two decades. But unless you have worked in one of those companies or you know someone who has, you've probably never met him. He's had tremendous personal success, but more importantly, he has made more than a few mining entrepreneurs and their shareholders an awful lot of money. The person that I'm talking about is Marcel de Groot, the president and co-founder of Pathway Capital, which he started with his partner 17 years ago. Uh, which is particularly impressive given that Marcel is only 45 years old today. Marcel grew up on a dairy farm outside of Vancouver in interior BC and had some early entrepreneurial success that we really dig into in this podcast. And that led him to pursue a career in business, which he did an accounting degree in. When I first moved to Vancouver, I'd heard about Marcel and I really wanted to meet him. But it took me months to actually track him down because he flies quite below the radar. And he's been in business for nearly two decades, and his firm doesn't even yet have a website, although that's going to be remedied very quickly. Marcel is extremely humble. He's down to earth. I would say he radiates integrity in everything he does. So I'm very pleased to have him on this episode of the podcast so that our listeners can learn from someone that I think is one of the best in the industry and someone I've had the opportunity to learn an awful lot from over the past three or four years. In this podcast, we discuss the role of venture capital in the mining industry. We talk about how to identify and get behind great teams. And we really dig into the things that can go wrong with your investment and and how to manage it when they do. Marcel gets incredibly candid with some of the successes and the failures he's had throughout his years, and he he does a great job imparting a lot of the lessons he's learned from those experiences with nearly two decades in this space. Marcel doesn't give a lot of public interviews, and this is by far the most extensive and in-depth one he's completed to date. In it, we discuss a lot of the companies that Marcel and his partner have either invested in or been involved in founding. This will include Sandstorm Gold, a royalty company based here in Vancouver. We talk a lot about Luna Gold, which was one of the early gold companies with projects in Brazil that Marcel helped found and even ran at one point, and which today is now part of Equinox Gold, a company that's chaired by Ross Beattie and on which Marcel sits on the board. What's particularly exciting for us is that Marcel is actually the person that introduced me to the first deal that we'll be covering as part of Resource Insiders. So Resource Insider members are going to have the opportunity to invest alongside Marcel into a really exciting early stage African gold project 
that him and his firm have spent a lot of time getting to know and are very knowledgeable on. I try not to make big blanket statements in anything I write or on the podcast, but if you've ever thought about investing in mining stocks or if you've been doing it for some time now and you want to learn how to get better, this is a podcast that you need to listen to. There are a lot of takeaways for investors in this episode, and I learned a lot, as I always do when I have the chance to sit down and chat with Marcel. So without further ado, let me please introduce Marcel de Groot. Marcel, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for having me. So we're sitting here today in your office, which is located in downtown Vancouver, and you are the co-founder and president of Pathway Capital, and you've been doing that job for about 14 years now. Can you tell people what Pathway Capital does? I'm yeah, sure. Pathway Capital is a little uh, uh, venture capital company that I, I formed with uh, my business partner, David DeWitt. And uh, Dave's background was securities law. He had a lot of success um, uh, early on and, and switched from securities law to venture capital. And I'm a chartered account by background. And what we do is we work with mining entrepreneurs who've had repeated success and, uh, and help to uh, uh, put companies together and, and help to uh, uh, try to ensure that we have all the pieces necessary to create uh, a company that can create uh, uh, some shareholder value and, and uh, uh, some success in the mining industry. So how old are you now, Marcel? Uh, 45. 45. And you've been doing that since you were about in your late 20s then? Yeah, that's right. So First you, started working with David DeWitt in 1999. So you got your start, um, I mean, in the, in the business world as a chartered accountant. That's right. I, I articled, uh, I did a commerce degree, I articled, and, and then went on and uh, shortly thereafter uh, joined up with uh, Dave DeWitt. But I guess if we take a step back further, and you've told me this story when we've been talking before, you actually got your first uh, start in the business world in helping run a dairy farm in Chilliwack where you grew up. Is that correct? Yeah, I grew up on a, on a farm or family has a long history in the in the dairy industry and I, so I grew up uh, you know milking cows and, and doing all kinds of things uh, uh, working on, on the farm so it was a good uh, a good place to learn how to work hard were there opportunities that you ran into that kind of helped nurture an investment or an entrepreneurial mindset yeah I mean back then uh, when you're in that kind of environment there's lots of opportunities I mean I used to, to do things like when I was a teenager wholesale corn and Effectively, run my own business in the summers doing that, and and uh, you get a taste for making business decisions and 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 how business operates, and and uh, uh, learn on the fly. And then, of course, uh, going into uh, uh, university, started to invest uh, early on, and and so I've always been kind of pretty keen on in, on business, and so uh, I've tried a lot of different things. Well, so, what does wholesaling corn entail? Is that you're buying fields of corn prior to them being harvested, or how does that work? Yeah, this is going back to when I was a teenager, but uh, yeah, I, I effectively would, uh, farmers would grow corn, I would buy the corn and uh, hire pickers and then uh, sell it at a chain of roadside stands and sell it to, you know, save on foods and, and roadside other uh, 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 fruit and vegetable stands. And, and uh, it'd be for a couple months in the summer and it was a good, uh, be a pretty lucrative business for that short period. So Marcel, what made you identify this opportunity and where did you really see the potential in it? Well, I had a number of older brothers, and one of them hired me to uh, 
uh, sit at one of his stands uh, in between milking the cows in the morning and the night. And while sitting there, you, you start thinking and you realize, well, wait a second, I could be um, hiring people to do this. And then you, 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 the next year I could start, I could, I got a driver's license turned 16. And, and uh, so I ended up hiring a bunch of friends and, and, and setting up a, a chain of stands from Hope to White Rock. And, and, uh, and then the following year, you think about it, you think about more, how can I optimize things? And, and so you realize, well, if I buy the corn, uh, from the, directly from the farmer and pick it myself, I can add an extra buck to the margin. Um, and uh, it went from there. So how many, how many, so your brother had one stand? Yeah, he had one. And then how many did you eventually have? I, I probably had about 15 stands, and then in addition to that would sell to uh, uh, the various stores, grocery stores and, and uh, uh, fruit and vegetable stands. And so did you spend your summers sort of driving up and down the highway Visiting different stands, making sure they were supplied, making sure they were being run properly. Like, yeah, how did was, that actually look? It was, it was long hours. I mean, it was, the days would really start at uh, four in the morning, and and when when the guys who would drive up north or drive to the island would come and buy, you know, three or four hundred dozen uh, uh, corn, and and uh, so I'd load them up, and then my pickers would show up at the field at five or five thirty in the morning, and, we, and then we pick uh, for for the stands and and for the stores because everyone wanted to buy. The key was having. Uh, fresh corn that was picked that that morning did you eventually sell that business or hand it off to one of your siblings or or did it just kind of die down in the yeah end? it I, as i as i got into my started articling for my ca it, it died down it was, it was only a couple months of the year and and the market's more now saturated but it was it was good while it lasted so you had been running this in the summers you go to was it ubc university yeah, of I british columbia yeah, i did a commerce degree at ubc that's right you decide to become a chartered accountant at that point. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't love accounting. Uh, it's just that what it came down to was, was that when I looked at my options in commerce, I realized that uh, you know um, account. I always thought of marketing as more intuitive and and uh, and the various aspects. But I thought accounting applied to every business. I happen to have five older brothers who were all entrepreneurial, and I thought you know one of us has got to suffer the pains of learning you know learning the rules of the game, i.e., learning a touchdown <laughs> seven and a field goal three, and so. Uh, so I did an accounting uh, major in commerce and then went on and, and became a chartered accountant, not loving any of it, but recognizing that I wouldn't enjoy it, but that learning that skill set would be uh, uh, forever valuable in business thereafter. So how long after you became qualified as a chartered accountant did you actually leave public practice in the accounting field? Uh, it would have been a, a few months thereafter. Um, you know, Once busy season started to come around, I realized I, I probably... Uh, couldn't stomach another uh, <laughs> another season of uh, doing audit and, and and tax returns, so I uh, I, I, I left public practice and and uh, and uh, I got into the into the public company uh, realm. So I mean that always was then sort of a means to an end to getting into business. Yes, yes. I mean it was just it was just I wanted to have a better uh, background and you know when you think for an entrepreneur uh, having a law degree or a chartered accounting degree, I think are two outstanding foundations to have and and uh uh for for myself uh accounting seemed to be the the lowest hanging fruit so i went in that direction and uh and uh yeah i think it's it it was it was quite uh wasn't the funnest experience to go through um but it it uh, served me uh, very well since then so i'm very happy to have made that decision so accounting is a very generalist degree you can go into any field you can use it for almost anything what drew you to the commodity space and specifically the mining industry? 
Well, I went back to university for myself. I had a number of friends who were geologists, including Dave Orham, who ended up founding Sandstorm with uh, Nolan Watson. And I, I started to get mining tips. I started to invest in the companies. So were these were these companies that your friends were working at in the summer or following, and and you just picked their brains in conversation? Exactly. They they, t- they tended to have some summer jobs, and so they got exposure to different companies. And then and, and of course, um, you know they they've got uh, pretty promotional stories, and so you get excited about the opportunities. Um, and this and, was the cash you'd made basically from the corn business. That's right. So I started to uh, invest in that and started to make money. Of course, uh, you know, you think you know what you're doing, but have no clue, of course. Um, and uh, in the end, uh, um, with the volatility in the space... Uh, you lost a lot of the money there? Yeah, I ended up losing a lot of the money. And, and, but, then you, but it was the best education you get because then you yeah. start to reflect on what did I do right, what did I do wrong... And it, you, you start to learn a lot of things early. Like you start to look at things with a healthy dose of skepticism as opposed and what can go wrong as opposed to, you know, start by, you know, start assuming everything's uh, true and everything's going to be wonderful and letting the greed side and the emotional side overrun your investment decisions. Yeah, you rarely see an investor, particularly in the mining space, that hasn't had one period at least of pretty significant losses and learned some hard lessons. Yeah, that, that's where you tend to learn the most is, is when you lose because um, it forces you to reflect. Uh, and then, of course, as you finish university and, and did my, my CA, you recognize that Vancouver is the center of the mining, of the junior mining industry, just like Silicon Valley is for tech when it comes to junior mining space. Mm-hmm. That's what Vancouver is good at. I think half the companies in the junior mining companies in the world are based here. So it was a pretty natural fit given the network you'd already had in place and then the opportunities you find in this city. That's right. So you recognize the opportunity in that space. You you'd made some money, and then you'd lost some money as well. What what was the first step you took to actually, upon leaving public practice, to get into working with public companies? Well, I, I, I had a, a contact who um, was starting up a little public company, and uh, and they needed uh, somebody who could do some things. And, and with my background, I fit in there, and and. Uh, from there, um, uh, it was being backed by a couple of successful venture capitalists, and, and so um, I started to get exposure to, to deal flow that came in, and and, uh, and and from there it kind of um, evolved into a partnership, and, and uh, um, so it, it was a, an evolution. Went through some steps, but you know the key was getting your foot in the door, and, and it kind of you know working really hard, and you know just you know if you, a lot of it was trial by um, you know sink or swim situations where you're basically. You're doing things that you haven't done before, but you just figure it out, and you and you really work your network and find uh, experts who who actually do know something about uh, the the problem area or the new area that you're looking at, so you can efficiently and, and cost effectively uh, come up with a plan. And so, uh, you know, a lot of it was um, uh, it was a lot of situations where you're, you had to be a quick study, and but I always sort of enjoyed those sort of challenges. So it, it uh, and and in the end, it, it worked out pretty well. And initially, this started as a, a tech company. Is that right? Yeah, the first one was a, a tech company that uh, it was a, a you know technology in '99 was just going crazy, and uh, and uh, uh, it was being backed by a couple mining guys, but they were in, investing in a tech company, and that uh, uh, tech company ended up um, uh, not working out because the tech market really uh, uh, crashed in, back in 2000, and. Um, you know, it was a novel idea, just a bit ahead of its time, and uh, it, 
ended up becoming cleaned up and, and turned into a mining company. And so that's kind of uh, uh, something that I was, I was uh, uh, able to participate in and, and, uh, and help out and see a company's uh, being uh, be, uh, effectively rebirthed. So let's so to place ourselves. How old are you at this point when it's been cleaned up? It's now a mining company. You've helped restructure that and put together this new company. Yeah, I'd be 26, 27 at that time. And so. can you tell us what that company was or what it was going after? Well, that was um, the, the mining company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that be, was that actually uh, turned into Luna Gold. And uh, it, it ended up um, having a couple of different people come in and, and uh, w- w- targeting different areas and different types of projects. And eventually... Um, uh, a few years later, it ended up becoming uh, 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 acquiring a project in Brazil, uh, the Arizona project, and uh, and started uh, on the development path. Okay, now I think a lot of people who will be listening to this podcast will be working in mining or or interested in that space, and something they'll probably be asking themselves is, you know, you partnered with a venture capitalist early on, and then. That relationship grew, and you still work with him today, and that's a lawyer named David DeWitt. Now, David's about 20 years older than you, I would guess. Yeah, that's right. And so how does a 20-something-year-old accountant come in, and how did you attract Dave to working with you? You know, a lawyer who's already had significant success. He's already invested in a lot of deals. What did you bring to that that equation? Well, uh, you know, I didn't... uh, at, I, at the beginning, I, I didn't know Dave and, and started to get to know him, and the, I think I, you know, won, won his trust by, you know, working really hard, uh, being resourceful, um, uh, you know, being solving problems, being a good listener, uh, taking advice, uh, being a team player, all those sort of characteristics, mm-hmm. um, and also taking a long-term attitude. I think that uh, that was something that we both uh, sort of shared about uh, how this business um, uh, is best was what was the best where we fit best into the business. So there's some um, some commonality in that regard, uh, but but that was over time. It, that that's that's kind of how I how I won his trust and was able to um, uh, work with him. I just to pivot a little bit there to elaborate. You know, you said you guys both took a long term attitude, and you know, for people who are maybe less familiar with the mining space, this is not something that everyone shares. Uh, can you maybe elaborate a little on what a long term attitude means as opposed to some of the other mindsets that have, are often taken? Well, just generically speaking, I mean, you've got short-term people and you've got long-term people. And uh, I, I think most people out there would be short-term people. And, you know, I always view uh, mining as a long-term game and, and, and your success is going to come by making decisions that are going to benefit you the best in the long term. Uh, certainly there's, there's times when you're making a decision where, where you'll get a boost in the short term, but then... Uh, that'll be short-term gain for long-term pain, and uh, we've always taken the view that um, that uh, the long-term will be <laughs> will be here before you know it, and so you're best off make decisions that are going to benefit you in that form. And uh, this is an industry that's very volatile industry, so it attracts um, when things pick up, it's going to attract a lot of short-term people, and you know that's there's um, that's part of the business, and. Um, and you know, short-term people are going to run companies in different ways, and, and, and sometimes they'll have fantastic success, but more often than than not, uh, they won't. Um, whereas, you know, we just find that uh, the risk reward equation is best managed by taking a long-term approach. So, and I mean, a long-term repro- re- approach means 
when you're funding a company, you're generally in at a very early stage, you want to see that company, I guess, fulfill its mandate in the, in the long term, whether that be make a discovery, define an asset, develop an asset, start mining an asset, as opposed to, you know, promote the stock and sell at a high and then exit early on. Yeah, I mean, you're, in this space, you're only as good as your last deal, and, and so you, you need to, uh, you know, make the decisions that are going to create the create the value in the in the in the, uh, in the long term. So you want to find projects that you you have to sift through a lot of projects to find projects that are going to meet that purpose, and then of course you need a little bit of luck as well, and uh, so that that it all it, it comes down to. So how we work is we we work with people. We don't run the companies ourselves. We find people who are very talented. And we work with those people and help out wherever we can, and we focus the company on the core competency of that of the individual or individuals that we've partnered with, and that and that's sort of um, uh, the approach that uh, we take. And these people that we tend to work with are tend to be people who are uh, have the same philosophies that we have with respect to how to build value. Okay, so you're around thirty years old. You've partnered with Dave, and you guys founded Pathway Capital at this point. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, your goal at this point is to find great teams led by great people who really know what they're doing uh, and get behind them. That's right. So yeah. what are the what are the some of the first or some of the some of the success stories that Pathway has had in this space and who have you partnered with that's really fulfilled that mandate? Well, one of the first ones that uh, came along was uh, in 2002, uh, David Lowell, who is a very successful geologist, um, well-known, especially well-known in the porphyry world. Um, he was involved in, in a model called the Lowell-Gilbert model, which is a uh, porphyry discovery model that uh, um, uh, helped explain the zonation of how porphyries form and, and helped, helps uh, geologists uh, identify the characteristics you're, you're searching for when, when trying to find uh, an economic porphyry deposit. Uh, he, he was a, a longtime contact of my business partner, Dave DeWitts. They, they were both involved in a company called Air Keeper Resources mm-hmm. um, that uh, ended up finding the Prina uh, mine in Peru and ended up being sold to Barrick uh, for a billion dollars back in 96 or early 97. And, uh, um, uh, and so that, that relationship uh, was one that uh, was a longstanding relationship and Dave decided Dave Lowell decided that it was a good time to search for copper projects, so uh, we were able to be involved in that, and that uh, led to the acquisition in 2003 of the Tormotro project in Peru, uh, and that was a case where Dave thought he needed four holes to test his theory that the grade was higher of this uh, old deposit, that the grade was higher, and that the uh, deposit was larger than, than thought of, and so uh, we were able to help participate in that financing, and uh, it, uh, it helped also help uh, Dave tested four holes, needed four holes to test his theory, had success, uh, and then based on that success, we raised some money privately, and then uh, in 2004, an IPO was completed in October 2004, and then it was sold in, to, in 2007 to Chanelco for $850 million. Okay. So that was one example uh, that came on early on. And so let's sort of dig into that a bit, because, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure to meet David Lowell, and, I mean, he's a geologist. His life is largely about discovery. And, you know, before you uh, and some other business partners, he was generally consulting to the majors, right? If uh, whoever they may be, 
yeah. big copper explorers wanted to explore a new region, they would bring in Dave to test the theory, right? And that's back him. That's correct. Dave was uh, Dave's a uh, he calls himself an explorationist because he actually has a, a mining degree and a, a mining engineering degree as well as a uh, degree in geology, and uh, so he he really focuses on trying to find. Uh, uh, economic deposits. I've heard Dave say a million times, or is rock that can be mined at a profit. And so he really tries to focus in on projects that he thinks can can uh, uh, produce a, a large economic uh, deposit. And, and he's less interested in in, in, in uh, uh, scientific curiosities where we might find something significant, but the grade won't work, or the inf- with respect to infrastructure, there's challenges, or socially, there's challenges. And, or just there's issues that take away from uh, the project ever becoming a mine, and so that's what he would do is he he would take his ideas to major companies and the major companies would finance them, and and he'd have his success from there. And then in in the '90s, um, Catherine McLeod actually convinced him to uh, run a public company, and that ended up being Airkeeper Resources. Uh, Dave Dewitt was uh, one of the um, directors of that and was a corporate lawyer. And uh, and from there, then Dave is focused on public companies. Hmm. So, this is something I find particularly interesting about about what you guys do and about venture capital and the mining space in general is that you've basically worked with someone like Dave Dave Lowell and built the infrastructure around them so that they can be successful and are not necessarily dependent on you know funding from majors, right? So. I assume that the ability to run your own public company, if you're a successful explorationist like Dave, can be far more lucrative than your consulting fees with a major. And you guys really put in the initial funding and then built the infrastructure on the corporate side so that that could happen. Yeah, that's right. And, and yeah, no, the, you're correct. I mean, the, the um, when you make it, if you work for a major company, you make a discovery, you, you might get a little bonus or a pat on the back or a... A promotion, um, but if you uh, if you're running a, a company that you founded and you make a discovery, you know it's it's, it's life changing uh, economically speaking, and so uh, it's very different economics. But then of course you're 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 leaving the corner office and the pension, and you're taking on a higher degree of risk as well. And so in that regard, I mean I, I think it's critical from an investment perspective that you you have to back people who have that knack. Uh, who have, have show, demonstrated a repeated ability to create success. And that's one thing that we uh, in this space really try to focus on. I'm a big believer in uh, Pareto's Law. I think Rick Rule actually was one who explained to me the third degree of it, where you know the idea that 20% of the people create 80% of the value, well, within that 20%, 20% of those people create 80% of that value. So by the third degree, you've got 1% of the people creating half the value. And so what we try and do is really try and focus on um, you know, those people who are who, who have that sort of knack for discovery because it, 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 it's, it's a very, very difficult to discover a mine. You've got, um, it's part art, part science, and, uh, you know, nature, and it's getting harder and harder as, as we, uh, um, as, as, as mines get found and more it gets explored, it gets harder and harder. So what are, what are some mistakes you see people commonly making who, are interested in, in maybe being venture capitalists or early stage investors in the mining space. In the mining space, they come in, you know, they they start throwing money around. Where where do they often go wrong? Well, I think that one one uh, mistake you can see is chasing. So a sector gets hot, and they're like, we we've got to be in that sector. 
and so we're going to chase it. So you know, some metals going on a run. So let's let's jump in there and grab a deposit. And and you know, what will happen is is that in, often these sometimes these situations, people will make a lot of money, and and they'll just they'll, they'll the share price will go up, and they'll blow out the stock. And and uh, but the challenge, of course, is that. Um, uh, is those situations can, can be short-lived and then you leave a situation where you've got a lot of shareholders left holding the bag and that makes it really hard uh, for your next venture um, to have success. And so I think chasing is one, pro- is one right. problem. Um, I think that uh, the best success I've seen is when you can put together, when you've got a core uh, of people who have had repeated success working together, uh, recognizing each other's skill sets um, and, 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 and working well together as a team um, to, to create value. And so that, that's the, uh, uh, you know, more of the approach we, we've taken. Yeah. Marcel, what do you see the role of venture capital playing in the mining industry? Is it you know, specifically for greenfield exploration? Does it work well in development stage or turnaround projects? Where do you see it to be the most effectively deployed? Well, it plays a pretty critical role, particularly in the exploration side, getting companies lifted off that otherwise wouldn't have had an opportunity to be uh, uh, started up, as well as uh, looking at certain assets that may have been forgotten about in the past, um, re-engaging with those assets. Uh, it, it's the highest risk area of the space, and so it plays a really important role in, in, in moving certain uh, companies or assets along into a lower risk profile that would attract uh, a, a wider investment audience. And when it comes to exploration versus development versus production, how do you see the various risk profiles as well as you know the returns investors can expect to receive if things go well? Well, exploration is where you get the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, exploration success, especially if it comes early and you've got a reasonable structure, you can make 5, 10, 20, even 100 times your money in the right circumstance. Uh, on the development side, you're looking at a, a potential 2, 3, 4, or 5 times your money. It's not the, the, the upside is muted, but you have much less risk. And then the same as uh, with production, you're, you're not looking at the significant returns. You're looking at healthy, very healthy returns. But again, you, you, your risk profile goes down significantly as you move uh, up the food chain with respect to the development of the asset. And where has Pathway traditionally focused? Well, our, our focus depends on the, the person we're partnering with in each venture. So, for example, if it's David Lowell, um, we're going to be focused on exploration or uh, development opportunities that have been overlooked. So you're focused more on the expertise of the person you're backing. That's right. That's right. So, in a, for example, in an Equinox, you've got Christian Lau and, and, and his David Lang and, and Greg Smith, who and their team who are all proven uh, mine builders and operators uh, in other ventures um, where, where, for example, uh, with Nolan Watson and Dave Orham, you know, they're, they're proven in the, in the streaming and royalty side. So that was a case of, of, of helping to finance, helping out uh, guys who were proven in, in, a, in another sector. So how did that come about? Um, did you know Nolan and Dave Orham and recognize something in them? Did they come and patron idea to you what was the the genesis of that yeah we we had a, a cpc and and uh you know they'd always wanted to start uh their own company uh we'd known them for some time and uh 
and so basically we help to uh, to uh, facilitate that and um, it, it uh, yeah and they of course um, you know went on to do a number of transactions and, and grow a significant company mm-hmm. now what were the I mean what were the qualities that you saw in Nolan and, and Dave that made you think that they would be well-suited and successful in, in building a, st- a new streaming company? Well, that, that one was pretty easy. I mean, Nolan was, uh, had the benefit of being uh, groomed early by, uh, by Ian Telfer, and, and, uh, who put him into a lot of uh, areas of responsibility early on and really saw something in him, and that really helped fast-track Nolan's career. Um, I mean, he was a gold medalist on the on the UFI exam that chartered accountants write the qualifying exam. Yeah, um, he, he's uh, he was the youngest CFO of a New York Stock Exchange listed company, um, and and uh, he partnered off his skill set partnered well with Dave Orms uh, in in many different ways, uh, from their training to their dispositions, and so that 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 was a pretty uh, pretty easy one, um, in the sense that it was clear that that he, a very high integrity individual long-term focused, very committed, um, a great network. And so that was pretty easy, uh, uh, person to, uh, to, um, uh, work with. So to look at the inverse of that, what are the things or the warning signs you tend to look out for with regards to management teams? And what are the things that investors should be aware of and try to avoid? Well, that's a long list. Um, I think you want to be working. I think the first thing is people. You want people who've had a repeated success. Uh, you want to make sure that people, the people are in positions that they've had the success in the past in the jurisdictions they've had the success in. Right. And I think that's worth elaborating on. And it's something Rick Rule talks about as well, that, you know, a mining engineer is not a mining engineer. A geologist is not a geologist. You want to back geologists that are basically doing the same thing they've done before. So if you build built an open pit mine, it's great if you're building another open pit mine. If you've found uh, epithermal gold deposits, it's great if you're exploring for another epithermal gold deposit. These skill sets don't transfer across the entire industry, right? A good exploration geologist isn't necessarily going to be a good um, good at running a development project, for example. Well, that's exactly right. And I think when you're as investors looking at that, they want to make sure that that's, that's the case. Okay, so that's one thing to avoid, but is there anything else uh, in more detail that you would keep an eye out for? Yeah, I think, you know, basic things. Uh, you want a good structure. You want to make sure that you get you be patient. You're getting in at a level that is attractive. Um, so what's a good structure mean? Well, a good structure means a tighter float. Uh, the, the management directors have a lot of money invested themselves in it. Uh, they're aligned. Their interests are aligned with yours. Um, they're focused on the company that... Uh, uh, you are uh, investing in, uh, so you, that you're not going to uh, uh, be abandoned if they have success in another venture that they're also running. Um, so, those, and, and also balance sheet is important in, in that in, you don't want a company that's over leveraged. You want to invest in a company that needs to finance in the short term, uh, because then you've got an overhang, and, and the stock probably has more downward pressure than otherwise. All things else being equal, could you give any advice to investors on? On where to start in researching that information, I mean, obviously, many will know of CDAR, which is the online database where they can look up, uh, you know, companies' financial statements and MD&As. But is there any way that you would recommend for, you know, a guy sitting at home interested in mining stocks and he wants to dig a bit deeper? Yeah, I think I would start off with, just as you mentioned, there's great resources online. 
to access. And depending on the stage of the company, you can get uh, analyst reports and, and things like that and other independent reports. Uh, one other thing I would do is actually I'd, I'd show up at the company AGMs. Nobody goes to these events, and you typically have senior management there available, and you want to you can get some real quality time asking them questions, meeting them, and judging for yourself for these people that I want to back. And I would add to that, um, and I've said this before on this podcast, don't be afraid to reach out and call companies. Most companies will have an IR person, uh, an investor relations person that's you know being established to answer these sort of questions. Or they'll have someone else in management that's prepared to do so. And if they don't, if you can't get a hold of them, if you can't get your, your questions answered in a reasonable way, that's probably something to be looking out for. I, I agree. So what do you do when you get burned? I mean, when things don't work out the way you think, when whether it be a shift in the market that you didn't anticipate or management hasn't delivered on what they had planned to or said they were going to, how do you manage that situation? Well, you, you uh, have to self-reflect and look and say, okay, what, what, because when things go well, people tend to think, okay, well, you know, we're really smart and, think, and, and uh, they don't stop to think, okay, why did things go well? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do, they tend to reflect more when things um, go, go wrong. And I try to do both because recognizing that sometimes things went really well, but luck was a bigger part of it than it should have been. Um, in other situations, though, when things go wrong, um, you, you got to look back and, and analyze and, and do it very objectively because if you're going to sit there and say, I was a victim, that's not going to get you very far. There's enough victims out there. You have to recognize that um, when you're part of a story and it doesn't have success, well, you're part of the reason it didn't have success. Okay, let's, so let's shift gears a little bit. Um, I want to talk about Luna. Uh, so this was one of the first companies you started, and you talked about having successes and having failures. Loon is an interesting story because it has gone on to become a success, but it took several iterations to get there, and it took setbacks that you had to work through on a few occasions. Can we talk about, you know, after that got founded, the mistakes that were made that went wrong and how those were corrected and it grew from there? Sure. Um, yeah, with, with, with the company, we, we picked up an asset in, uh, in Brazil and uh, this goes back to 2007, and it was moving along quite nicely. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, July of 2008 uh, came along, and it, uh, it was a nosedive. The, the whole market got into a very difficult situation. And um, you know, it was a situation where we, we had to make some really tough decisions with respect to uh, you know, the burn rate. Uh, the, the, the challenge we had is we, we, we were spending more money than, we, than, we, than was uh, appreciated, and a larger deficit was created than we um, had anticipated. And uh, it was the worst possible time to, um, to be in that situation. So that's one thing is, you know, always ensure you've got a strong balance sheet because you're going to trade at a premium and you'll do so for a reason because then you can withstand the surprise that are inevitably going to happen. So that was, you know, one issue that arose. And, the and second, in this scenario, a strong balance sheet means cash and not a lot of debt. Yeah, that's right. Um, if you're going to have debt, you want to make sure that. Uh, in, in this case, we didn't have a, a lot of debt. We just had, you know, we were completing a feasibility study. We had uh, a high burn rate uh, that was kind of higher than we had thought, and uh, and it led to. Um, and we also had a, a large property payment that was coming up, um, so it led to a, a deficit that we had to fill, and so we had to, uh, you know, um, 
as a director, we had to make some tough decisions there, and, and we had to, uh, um, you know, basically claw our way through there. Um, but you know, one one lesson I learned from there is is always keep a strong balance sheet, and also, um, you know, one of, the, one of the challenges you have when you're starting up a company is you 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 don't get the A team um, right in day one. Uh, when you're when you're a small little company, you can't attract uh, you know a, a seasoned CEO, a seasoned COO, a seasoned CFO, and, and or especially like a team of. In the best case, you've got a team like that who's all worked together before mm-hmm. building projects successfully. So it's hard, and and so you know people are put in positions that are, are that they haven't been in before, and that's and and uh, beside people who haven't who are who haven't done that position uh, before, and so. It leads to uh, you know a lot of uh, a lot of challenges, and it's it's a it can be a pretty uh, you know uh, unfair position for people to be put into as well. But anyway, that, that's how how it is for smaller companies because you're you don't have the balance sheet, you don't have uh, you're, you're just getting things started, and, and the skill sets that you actually need uh, as you move from exploration to development to production are changing. Right, and so it's it's not an easy road to navigate. And in navigating that road, we we learned a lot of things, and, and I you know I, I learned a lot of things personally and mistakes I, I reflect on, and and um, but you know having having done it though now, it certainly can make a lot better decisions in the future. Well, you had to step in and, and be management at Luna at one point, didn't you? Yeah, at one point um, we couldn't afford to pay uh, management anymore, so I, I at one point uh, took the, the role of chairman and, and CFO, which is not uh, typical. Uh, Situation um, and uh, and so I had to um, just work for free there for a while and uh, and just to because at that point in time what you're trying to do is save save your reputation and, and uh, fight your way through things and, and uh, that period was was hard and so we were able to uh, um, raise a couple million dollars and then uh, we'd we'd navigate we'd search every M and A possibility out there and it just what happens in these downturns is is that even people who have the money. Uh, can can suffer from paralysis in the sense that it was just so bad, and how much better was how much worse is going to get? Because mm-hmm. the average major mining company at that point in time was down eighty five percent. So when was this? To this places? is this is in the end of two thousand and eight. Okay. So from July to uh, after a big crash. Yeah, July two thousand eight yeah. till December two thousand eight was basically fall, the whole market fell off a cliff. We're talking, you know, tech. I think was people thought tech might go bankrupt. Um, companies like Silver Wheaton had fallen to three dollars. Three or four dollars a share. Um, lots of major companies. If you look at Rio Tintos and etc., they were they were down uh, very substantially. And so it was a market. So when that happens, um, there's not a lot of love. There's not a lot of support you're going to get. So we we eventually we we kind of clawed our way back. We did a thirty million dollar financing in February of two thousand nine, basically bringing in David Lowell and bringing in Jeff Loudon and, yeah. and Louise Bertol and a successful group that we'd known from the Peru Copper days and. And basically got checks from anybody we could, and, and then kind of clawed our way back. And then we asked uh, Nolan Watson if you know if, if that was something he could help us out with. And, and that was a bit different, unique in the sense that at that point in time, uh, gold streams were, were being done as byproducts to base metal companies, right? Um, because the whole nav multiple uh, that existed, whereas our B, our share price, our market cap was eight million dollars um, and uh, pre financing there. And so, to get the last money, we asked if he could help us out, and uh, and uh, um, ended up doing a, a stream there, and uh, and then basically, then going on to uh, build the mine and take it from there. Mm-hmm. So you sold a stream to Nolan at Sandstorm, uh, and the mine went into production, uh, but 
after a while, we suffered another crash, right? And this would have been post-2012 or so. Yeah. Where gold price dropped and it was uneconomical to run. Yeah, I I left the company in 2012 and and things were going, um, you know, the market was strong. And and, uh, even the following year, um, uh, after I left, the the stock continued to go up and and, uh, while while others were were going downward. But then, you know, eventually um, the gold price corrected strongly and, and they were in expansion phase and didn't have sufficient capital, and mm-hmm. so it it, uh, it took a hit then, and uh, that's when uh, Pacific Roads and Dan Wilton came in, and and uh, and then later they were able to attract uh, Christian Malau as management, uh, who who uh, is currently the the CEO of Equinox. I, I always think this is this is an interesting and sort of common trajectory that people underestimate how hard these projects are going to be. Um, to get up and going, to finance, to run properly, and to get operating in a way where they're consistently making money. And you see this again and again in the mining industry that it takes one, two, three shots and a significant amount of sunk capital into these projects before they've reached a place where they can actually be successful, where where they can be operated consistently and consistently you know, make money. And I think that Loon is hitting that today with Equinox beginning to put it into production by the end of this year but it took three tries and you know not a an eight million dollar market cap company but a half a billion dollar market cap company that's properly capitalized and spent you know a significant amount of money to actually make it work uh, that's right you do, you do see that a lot because ultimately you have products that are built and they're not built for example in, in this case it was started off as a 60,000 ounce project uh, there was a lot of pressure to get the mine going because it was a suspended project, and it was basically uh, the fear was that we were going to lose the project if we didn't build the mine. Um, we thought there was some exploration potential there was uh, at the beginning, but that was just not something that we could mm-hmm. uh, put a lot into. Um, but you, you see that a lot because what happens is when you're starting out a, pro- a small company is trying to become a larger company, you don't have necessarily have um, this, the seasoned team. Um, you don't have access to capital, uh, and you don't, and so sometimes you don't uh, uh, scale the project at, at the appropriate level, or the project's not understood to the degree it should be, and so in the second and third iterations, um, you often see a, uh, you often see a, a, a more complete. You know, if you, you analyze it, you'll see a more complete team. You'll see better access to capital, um, and and you'll see the appropriate scaling of the of the project. And so you know, you take a look at Equinox. I mean. For the first time, that project is, is well financed. It's got a seasoned team that has worked together building mines before, um, and it's got uh, uh, and it, it also is being built on the scale for the first time that it should be. It's now going to be producing at 135, 140,000 ounces, uh, where where it can it can uh, uh, prosper at, at, at a, a much wider range of gold prices. Where right. on a small scale, if you if you don't have strong prices, you're not going to last, and so. Right now, the, the project is very well understood. Exploration is going excellent. Uh, we have an incredible chairman in the, in the, in the form of Ross Beattie. I mean, Ross is uh, putting a tremendous amount of time into it, and, and uh, he's, it's been a real pleasure to have the opportunity to learn from a guy uh, who's had that much success, and you just see his determination, conviction, and how he pushes management, and and uh, um, it's been a, uh, you know I think all the pieces are finally in place here. It really has. Um, um, excellent success, and we should note that you are on the board of Equinox now. Yes, yes, we uh, we had uh, um, 
merged a number of smaller companies and then were able to uh, uh, merge with Luna Gold and form Trek Mining back in 2017. And then at the beginning of 2017 and then at the end of the year, uh, we're able to uh, do a transaction with Anfield and Newcastle to form Equinox, named Equinox because it was Ross Beatty's first public company, and he says he wants to, he started his career with Equinox, and he wants to finish it with uh, Equinox, and, and we're definitely seeing that. It's, it's pretty, uh, we're very lucky to have had the timing and, and circumstances present themselves to allow for, for someone of that uh, uh, capability and, and uh, in, in, from financial to uh, business acumen, et cetera, come in and take over the company. You know, I think this is interesting in that something I look at as an investor, and I'm not sure everyone fully appreciates, is the idea of sort of transition points in the mining industry in that the team, the prospector that's out there making a discovery is not necessarily the person or the team really define that asset and turn it into, uh, you know, a 43101 compliant understood asset is not the team to take that through the development stage and is not the team to actually operate that mine consistently and have it cash flow positive, that it takes all these, all these different stages in the industry, take different people with different skill sets and different levels of experience to, to operate effectively and to be successful in it. And as an investor, I think you want to know what stage you're focused on and what what the skill sets of the team you're backing is so that you can have a time frame in mind saying, okay, I know these guys are out to make a discovery. And once that discovery is made, you know, maybe it's time to get out, especially for the retail investor at home. Instead of seeing what's not uncommon, a geologist fall in love with a project and say, you know what? I want to put it into production now. Yeah, you know, well, that's exactly right. They're, they're, they're different skill sets, and you can't be good. You can't be a tier one player at everything. You're not, you're not going to be a tier one player at finding mines, developing mines, and, and operating a mine. So, I mean, you're best off to partner with somebody who understands what they're good at uh, versus somebody who, who, who doesn't. I mean, I think a key part of our success is, is understood, recognizing okay, this is what we're good at, and here's the areas that we're not good at. And when even when we start a company and we put the first pieces in place, you know, there's still you have to build around around what you have. And, and, and you know, you take Dave Lowell, for example, uh, you know, his network. He, if you want to uh, fall out of favor with Dave Lowell, start pontificating about an area that you're not an expert at. You know, um, yes, he always says he knows not what he knows not. And, and uh, so we really try and, and uh, focus on, on working with people who have that understanding so that as you evolve through those stages, uh, you can make the adjustments necessary so that you, you can stay on the path of success. And that's much easier said than done because just as you said, people love and fall in love with that paycheck. Um, they, they, they ego, egos kick in. And the most success is when you have a team of people who aren't worried about ego or just worried about the ultimate long-term goal of creating value and will step aside if it, and recognize that, hey, I can't add the value in this role that I, I can, right. I, that, I, that I'd and like I mean, to. And that's very rare, right? To, to meet people it is rare. that it is know rare. what they're good at, right? Yeah, it is rare. To meet the, the uh, you know, the 
chief financial officer that knows he's a phenomenal chief financial officer but and should stay that instead of being a mediocre CEO or to meet the exploration geologist that knows he shouldn't try to be taking it through the feasibility study and doing the engineer leading the engineering works it's uh you know it's it's that self-awareness I've found is a lot less common than you would think or even hope for you know? no I agree I've always uh, um tried to uh, uh, work with the smartest people I could find, the best people I can find, and, uh, and, and just so that you have, uh, again, um, but, but also people of that uh, disposition who also work well as a team and, can also, and, and also don't have the egos and, and those other characters because they're equally important um, so that you can, again, foster uh, uh, an environment that can create success. If you're a retail investor at home, how do you manage these challenges? Like, what advice would you have for? Well, I, I think the key is to look is is to be really careful. Um, you see things, for example, like oh, this guy was a C, was at BHP or or was at Goldcorp or you know some other large mining company, right? And so therefore, they must be great. But running a major company and running a small company are very different skill sets. And I'm talking about the junior mining world, and because you don't have the outs, you don't have that uh, all that. Uh, protection around you when you make a mistake there's not you can't just pull money from another area or you know you don't have a really strong balance sheet so you got to be really focused on how you spend your money and so mm-hmm. and and the other thing too is that some of these larger companies 50,000 people work there well they're not all good some of them are good at what they do some are good at politics and some or other, right. other things that got there so you, you have to um you know you, you really have to dig below the flashy uh promo page and, 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 and talk to the, the people and, and figure out, okay, have these people done, are these, talk to the people so you can, you can weigh, you can appropriately weigh their words, meaning, you know, here's, if they're claiming they're going to build this mine on time on budget, but they've never done it before, okay, well, that's, stay away from that, that's a big red flag. Um, so you really want to delve into it and look at, at the people, um, look at, at what, you know, who's backing the company, what's their motivation, what's their track record and really focus on companies where the people have had repeat success because otherwise you're, your money's going to be guinea pig and uh, and it's just it's not a place you want to be. Yeah, and I think that's important to highlight that you really want to be able to dig into the company and see how it's been structured so that that management's fully aligned with shareholders that yeah. their success if they succeed, shareholders will succeed as well. That's right. You want to make sure management's invested a lot of their own money. It, it doesn't matter the amount so much as, as the amount is <clears> meaningful uh, to the individual. And you, you also want to understand the plan, like why that asset is, 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 is going to be so good. Because often you'll get you know, projects that are you know, regurgitated and, and they really have no hope because the team, but the team running it thinks they can promote and make themselves yeah. a lot of money. So you have to dig, dig deeper and uh, chase success. I mean, guys like the, the Beatties and Lundines, um, you know, they, they've been fall, have the biggest followings for a reason. They've earned it. And so you really want to be um, uh, investing in people who, who have done it before and, and, and are going to be doing it again. And you want to be getting it at a level that's attractive. Be patient on your entry point. So would you give any advice to people that are maybe they're starting out their career and, they, and they listen, they're listening to this podcast and they'd like to be in venture capital in, in the resource sector specifically? kind of steps you would take to, to make well, that happen? Well, the first thing I'd say is you want to self-reflect and, and uh, you know, because it's a, it's a space that, that can seem glamorous when you look at success stories, but what you don't necessarily see is the hundreds of other stories that weren't successful. So you really got to take a look and say, 
is a, is is a, the roller ride roller coaster ride of commodities and junior exploration um, something that I can handle with my disposition uh, because if 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 that if you're if you're more comfortable just you know doing your work and getting the paycheck and then moving on to, and enjoying your life then this is not the space for you and there's nothing wrong with that it just you, what you want to do is ensure that um, it's a fit for your disposition and if that is the case um, you know you really want to have a good understanding of of what it is you're good at versus what you're not good at. Um, and, and that really comes down to often what you like to do, because if you like to do something, you're probably going to be better at, at it than things you don't like to do. And then you want to, uh, with that in mind, you want to uh, target the industry uh, so that you can end up in a position that uh, fits your, your, your skill sets and your, your disposition, um, and then go chase it from there. Yeah, that's good advice. And I mean, the the disposition that would suit venture capital, I guess, would be, I guess, having a very large stomach for risk. Yeah, and, and also strong emotional intelligence um, because, you know, you're going to be dealing with a lot of different types of people. You know, you have to be good at reading people. You have to be a quick study. You don't, you don't want to be making uh, repeating mistakes. Um, you want to be taking a long-term approach. You want to, you know, do as much homework. And the key is always um, stopping and checking yourself so that you're ensuring that your decisions are, are objective as opposed to looking for facts that support what you want to believe. Uh, don't fall in love with things. you got to keep, keep an objective focus. Always be questioning um, things. Always be looking for reasons why you might not be right um, so that you can, you can uh, again, uh, be making the best decisions because it's not a game for, for, for the emotional. Um, you want to be able to... Uh, to uh, make objective decisions and, and, and ride things out. Is there anything that Pathway Capital is working on today that people should keep an eye out for in the coming months or years? Yeah, and we're involved in a number of companies. Uh, on the public company side, uh, you know, Sandstorm, I think, has got a great portfolio with diversified with tremendous upside. I think Equinox Gold has a really exciting situation as well. Two multi-million ounce deposits, fantastic team led by Ross Beattie. Uh, Entree Resources is another one that we're large investors in, very cheap uh, for what is a meaningful uh, piece of the OT mine in Mongolia run by Rio Tinto. Um, on the private front, we're involved in a number of uh, exciting stories. Uh, that would include Sun Peak Metals, where we've got uh, a team that's made a couple of discoveries in the Nubian Shield and, and is now uh, in Eritrea, and they're now moved into Ethiopia and have t- tied down some, some very attractive ground that... Uh, you know, it looks like they'll be able to continue their success on. Uh, another is Progress Minerals, which is led by Adam Spencer, who's a, who has a core mark and Sandstorm background, and, and Kirk Woodman. Uh, Kirk has got been involved in four discoveries in the past, and uh, he's, they've tied up a significant land package in Cote d'Ivoire and, and Burkina Faso. In Burkina Faso, they've got a 27-kilometer trend that looks like it could be, could be hosting a, has the potential to host a multi-million ounce deposit. And in Ivory Coast, uh, one of their projects, for example, has got seven square kilometer golden soil on me at 0.4 grams. So it's really exciting stuff um, in those private companies that uh, that are, are quietly creating value behind the scenes. And is there a website that people can check out if they want to learn more about Pathway? We're just uh, launching a website uh, shortly called at www.pathwaycapital.ca. All right, Marcel, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, 
Go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.